Welcome to Salon Air. I'm Ruth Dickey, Executive Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Salon Air is a podcast of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Support for the inaugural season of Salon Air comes from the M.J. Murdoch Charitable Trust. For more conversation and connection, join us for our 2018-19 season, featuring talks by Catherine Boo, Somaz Sharif, Zadie Smith, and more literary surprises. Tickets are available now at lectures.org. This episode features Azar Nafisi, who joined us at Benaroya Hall in February 2006. Nafisi electrified readers worldwide with Reading Lolita in Tehran, a memoir in books, published in 2003 and a long-running number one New York Times bestseller. Nafisi taught at the University of Tehran as the Islamic Revolution raged around her, until she was fired in 1981 for her refusal to wear the mandatory veil. Before leaving Iran in 1995, she spent two years holding secret classes on forbidden Western literature in her home. Reading Lolita in Tehran recounts seven young women students passionately relating Nabokov's works, as well as novels like Madame Bovary and Pride and Prejudice, to their own lives, claiming intellectual freedom through their survey of banned literature. Since her visit, Nafisi has published Things I Have Been Silent About, a best-selling memoir about her mother in January 2009. She is now the executive director of Cultural Conversations at the Foreign Policy Institute of Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C., at the conclusion of Nafisi's talk, Margaret Rankin, then executive director of Seattle Arts and Lectures, joins her in an interview. Here's an evening of inspired teaching, intellectual integrity, and personal courage with Azar Nafisi. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It is such a pleasure to be here in this city again. Uh, you know, one of the best things about books is the connections they make. Um, uh, books are, in a way, like our children. Um, you go through so much pain and labor, and once they come into the world, you don't know about the places they take you, the wonderful, strange places they take you. And you don't know about the intimate strangers they bring into your home, uh, strangers who make to you known the stranger within you. So I'm, I'm, that is what makes me grateful, um, both about the act of writing and the act of reading. And um, I actually found this amazing city uh, through my book. The first time I came uh, to Seattle was um, in order to talk about my book. And uh, they told me that this wonderful, amazing place, and every time they talk about it, there was a sort of a, you know, this sort of a feeling, place called Elliott Bay Bookstore. <laughs> yeah. Yes, definitely. Big hand for Elliott Bay. And it, it was 
absolutely amazing. I never forget. It was one of my most unforgettable experiences when I talked there, and I hope that I friend, made friends there would, for life with both Rick and Barbara Johnson. And then the second time again when I was asked to come to Seattle, and, and to tell you the truth, they told me the only thing about Seattle is that it rains a lot. But the two magical days I was here, it was sunny two amazingly sunny days. So I took it as a good omen, and then I came here again the second time, and now it's the third time, and I would like to thank the uh, Seattle Austin Lecture um, for inviting me here, and my wonderful, amazing guardian angel, uh, Stephen Barkley, wherever he is, um, for connecting me to um, uh, places uh, like this. Um, now, one of the things that I always wonder whenever I go and talk is, um, don't people think that it is rather strange to be talking about, say, Lolita in Tehran, um, or Flaubert in London, um, or Twain in uh, Washington, D.C., at a time like this? When, when you think of Tehran, you definitely do not think of Nabokov. What, I mean, remember, um, and uh, Iran nowadays, our um, wonderful, lovely president, uh, Mr. Ahmadinejad, um, is um, uh, on uh, CNN and, uh, New and the cover of um, Newsweek and New York Times more than George Clooney these days. <laughs> um, but what do you hear about Iran? What images come to your mind when you think of Iran? Um, the question of WMDs, the question of terror, a president who talks about um, either destroying a country or transferring it to Alaska. These are, these are the images that come to your mind when you think of Tehran, but you do not think of Lolita. And unfortunately, when we think of my own other home, Washington, D.C., um, you don't think of the amazing National Gallery or Phillips Gallery, or um, you don't think of the authors that gave this country um, its greatness, like Mark Twain or Edgar Allan Poe or Zora Neale Hurston or Toni Morrison. The places where we used to walk without any barriers are now barricaded. When you listen um, to the news on television, uh, the colors uh, red and orange and yellow no more mean the colors of leaves and flowers. They, are, uh, the, they signify the uh, level of alert systems. So everywhere, on television, in our media, in our homes, what we talk about, Whenever we talk about ourselves and others, we are talking about violence and we're talking about politics in its most reduced and um, vulgar manner. Our life has become mainly sound bites. Our knowledge of ourselves and others has been reduced to a sort of polarization between, say, um, Ann Coulter and Michael Moore. Um, our, our politicians have become actors, and our actors have become politicians. So this is why I think that now, more than ever, is it important to talk about literature, and to talk about art, and to talk about imagination. 
So what I want to do tonight is, in fact, uh, talk a little bit about my own experiences, but talk about them um, in relationship to this relation between fiction and reality. In what ways can imagination be subversive? In what ways do we need imagination? Um, is there a time when politics becomes so urgent that we no more need to think about a Fitzgerald or a Wallace Stevens or a Baudelaire or a Mallarmé? Uh, this is the question that I would like to put to you, and I would like to put it to you uh, because the time is short anyway through uh, my own life experiences, and um, in fact, my mind is now a little away from, lead, uh, from reading Lolita, although I'll be talking a little bit about it, um, and already in the other books that I have been working on. Um, but in those books, again, I think in every work, um, especially in a story, whether it's a memoir or a work of fiction, there is always this tension between reality and fiction. Um, there is a struggle and tension between what reality and what fiction is. So I want to talk about that. And I want to talk about the necessity of imagination and why without um, appreciating and without having imagination, you in fact will be deprived of um, being good at any other area of life, whether it's the domain of politics or whether it's science or um, economics, because imagination is always uh, destabilizing you. It is always questioning the present. And giving to you the potential for what life could or should be. So in order to be able to be a good politician or a good anything, you need to have that vision. You need to have that power of seeing not what is, but in what is, what has been, and in what has been, what could be. And the other thing about uh, the, the core of imaginative knowledge, imagination is um, another um, branch of knowledge uh, without which we cannot literally live. Because at the core of all knowledge, especially imaginative knowledge, is the idea of curiosity. Is this insatiable urge to want to know what you don't know to want to know not just what you don't know about others, but those deep and hidden secrets within yourself. And I, I always talk about this to my students, and I mentioned it in my book, um, what Nabokov used to tell uh, his students, that curiosity is insubordination in its purest form. And, and you know, it, once you are curious, you become restless. That, that, it becomes an instinctively, an impulsive urge um, to move beyond where you're at, to move beyond um, things that become routine, things that become habitual. And um, uh, once you do that, once you become curious, then the world is never the same. Um, Tolstoy um, used to talk about how um, the world of literature is the world where um, you, you look at the world through clean washed eyes. You look at the world uh, through the alternative eyes of imagination. Nabokov used to call it the third eye of imagination. Rumi used to say, open your other eye in order to see what is hidden and what is secret. 
Um, I always tell my students um, about um, uh, a story that you're all familiar with about Alice in Wonderland and about how of all the millions of little girls, there's one little girl named Alice who sees not just a white rabbit, but a white rabbit who talks, who wears a waistcoat and a pocket watch. Now, if you have the eyes to, to go beyond the routine, beyond the habit, and discover that sort of a white rabbit, and if you have the courage not to impose your own uh, formulas, your own desires, your own already ready-made images upon either reality or your dreams, and have the courage to run after the rab white rabbit and jump into the hole, then you will be rewarded then you will find the wonderland in which everything that you knew in life exists, but in a different combination. And when you come out of that wonderland, nothing will ever look the same again. And any one of you who has been reading a great book, I'm sure that you understand that experience, you understand that tingle in the spine, as Nabokov would, would say, when you read um, a great work of um, fiction. And it is through this curiosity that then you have the shock of recognition, that you understand not just the differences with others, but the similarities. Um, we live in a very, very politically correct world, and it is becoming more and more intimidatingly politically correct. Um, and, and being politically correct um, is the worst um, thing you can do um, uh, to any work of imagination, because imagination by nature is irreverent and, and, and playful and ambiguous and, and, and filled with doubt. And, and, and that politically correct world keeps telling us, let us not um, go beyond uh, certain limits. Let us not look into others for the fear of what we might find. And, and, and it keeps talking about celebrating the differences. But celebration of difference would mean nothing without that shock of recognition. Because no amount of moral dictums, no amount, no number of laws, no matter how politically correct you are, you will not be able to empathize with a mother who has lost her child and her home, be it in New Orleans, or in Darfur, or in Tehran, or in Kabul, or in Iraq. In order to understand that woman, in order to understand others, you have to be able to be empathizing with them. You have to be able to, as the narrator in To Kill a Mockingbird says, put on somebody else's shoes and walk around in them a, a bit. And this is what literature does. It puts you in other people's experiences. And for the period of time when you're reading a great book, you become that other. And once you become that other, it becomes much more difficult to remain indifferent to their plight. So I think that there is a domain that goes beyond politics. And that is a domain where both democracy and human rights and terror and fundamentalism and totalitarianism become universal where we understand that we as individuals, we as human beings, are capable of the best and the worst. 
So this is, I remember Nabokov used to, um, uh, John Shade in Pale Fire used to say, um, pity is the password. And, and, and I think that that is a good password for, for the kind of world uh, we live in today. Uh, so, um, I just wanted to tell you a little bit about my own stories and uh, uh, from these stories talk about sort of the different relations between um, fiction and reality and I wanted to talk again about uh, some of my experiences in Iran and, and one of the reasons I wanted to talk about these experiences was while you feel that these experiences are very different from yours, I also wanted to show how there is a dialogue how there is an essential similarity between two cultures, between two people, between two nations that might be very different or that might be thousands of miles um, apart. So I thought that I, um, if I want to trace the relationship between um, at least my experiences of um, reality and, and fiction, and the first time I became aware um, of, of, of the importance of fiction was I remember that it was the first time I had a fight with my mom, and I was very young, I was about four years old, and we were both very obstinate. And um, I wanted my, in my room, um, there was a big window with a wonderful window ledge, and I wanted my bed to be by the window. She wanted my bed to be by the, by, the, by the wall, by the closet. And every time, every day, I would cry and jump up and down, and sometimes she would re relent and put my bed by the window ledge. By the time I come home um, uh, from playing with my friends, she's moved the bed again. You know, and, and, and I remember one day I had come home, and, and, and she'd done it, and, and I really, really was heartbroken. And I just cried myself to sleep. And in the morning, my father came to my bed, and um, there was this arrangement my dad and I used to have ever since I was, I think, three years old, ever since I can remember, as far back as I have memory, where every night he used to tell me a story. But this time, he changed the routine. Um, he came to my bedside with a small um, plate of chocolates, and he told me, um, and he knew that you know, I was very uh, somber and I wasn't going to smile at him and make him feel good. Um, I wanted to make them as guilty as possible about um, you know, the way they've been treating me. And, and he told me, um, uh, if you are a good girl and you smile, um, I want to share a secret with you. And I refused to smile, but anyway, he shared the secret. And, and he said that, let you and I, instead of me telling you a story, let you and I make up a story together. And, and from that day on, we started this game of making up stories, of telling one another the way we felt about things through the stories. Every time like I would do something he didn't like, he would say there was this um, father who had a little girl whom he loved so much, but she did, you know, yada, yada, you know. And, and you know, this way he would make me much more guilty than if he had told it to me um, directly. So. I think what I learned at that age was that apart from the real world over which I had little control, there was another world that I could go to, and that was my world of dreams and my world of fiction, where I could not only move my bed by the window, I could in fact fly out of the window. And in that world, neither my mom, nor my kindergarten teacher, nor the policeman um, in the street, none of them had any power 
I was the queen of my world. And, and then the next event, uh, which I talk about it in uh, the book I wrote, um, reading Lolita in Tehran, happened when I left home. I mean, I did not leave Iran. I was forced to leave Iran. Um, and uh, really and honestly, people who, um, some of my, uh, the friends and relatives who were at the airport that day remember me decades, decades ago um, when I was a 13-year-old brat running around the Tehran airport saying, I don't want to leave. But then you learn, um, because my parents wanted to send me to England um, for my edu education, you know, um, go and see the world, be on your own, and um, things like that. And, and that was the first time that I realized how easy it is to lose everything that you love. And, and, and that was the first time that I was, in a very tangible way, confronted with the idea of loss. And, and, and you know, uh, the, the point about it was that um, th there are small things. I, I don't know, for example, um, if you were forced to leave this amazing city, what you would take with you? Would it be the view of the water? Would it be the color of the sky at a certain time? But for me, um, what I called home, apart from the people I loved, um, uh, Tehran is surrounded by um, high mountains. And, and, and before it became the, one of the most polluted cities in the world, um, it, it had the bluest of all the skies. And, 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 and for me, um, what, what meant home was that special color of the sky. It was the, we used to sleep out at nights, and it was the number of stars um, uh, that we used to count, and we used to choose which star would be ours. Um, and, 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 and it was the mountains that were the highest, the, a mountain um, peak, um, Damavand, was always snow-capped. And this was what I missed. And I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself. At least Stephen has heard this before. Um, but I'm going to do it anyway. I like it. Um, uh, there were, uh, they, they suddenly... I was bereft not only of the language I spoke, not only of the culture, not only of my parents and friends, but I was also deprived of that blue sky and the, and the snow-capped mountains and the special colors of, of, of the trees. And, and I was shipped to a town called Lancaster, England, where no mountains, much worse than Seattle in terms of the rain. I mean, rain day and night, and day and night. So what do you do? What do you do when you realize how fragile reality is? What do you do when you realize that it is not just war and revolution? Um, it is so easy to lose everything that you have had or everything that you had gained. And, and of course, then during the revolution, I realized how easy it is to even lose what your own identity, the kind of person you were. So you need identity papers which would not be easy to take away from you. You need something that you cannot lose that the world cannot take away from you. And that was when I learned that um, the only thing that is portable, my portable world, what I can take with me, would be um, my memories, 
No one can take your memory from you. And this is, of course, why imagination is so important, because imagination is the most um, um, faithful and loyal guardian of memory. Those fragile moments, those detailed moments that are so easy to lose are all captured um, in the drop of a curtain, um, in a painting, in, in, a, in a gaze. A, a woman that has died for centuries becomes alive um, in the teasing um, look in her eyes um, in a painting. Um, then um, a dance that is never practiced again becomes alive through a story. This is how we preserve life because everything, every moment, everything is constantly changing, and every moment, everything is constantly dying. So um, I had that, I had my memory, and then I had some books that I had taken away uh, with me, especially books of poetry by one of uh, two of our most amazing classical poets, Hafez and Rumi, and a, a feminist um, Iranian poet um, who died very young and who later was banned by the Islamic Republic um, and called um, a whore, Furugh uh, Farrokhzad. And I had these books by my bedside. And I again tell this story that, you know, in England, especially in uh, late 60s, it was, um, the, the weather was cold and damp, but the heater, you know, they, were, they had these heaters where you dropped shillings into them. And if you were too close to them, you burned. And if you were too... And, and one other thing that I really appreciate from my childhood was the way my father used to tell my brother and I stories. Um, he didn't tell us just Persian stories. He would tell us stories from Ferdowsi or Rumi, and then we would be hearing um, about this wooden um, child named Pinocchio. Then we would be reading the stories of La Fontaine. Then um, there would be um, Tom Sawyer and later um, Huckleberry Finn. And I remember that by the time I, I, I left Iran, uh, I, I was already, without knowing it, carrying the world in me. Um, there was Victor Hugo, there was Flaubert, there was Dostoevsky, there, were to there was Tolstoy, there was Dickens, and the way I made my peace with the new countries I went to were through these golden ambassadors of these countries. Um, and, and I tell this story especially because whenever my daughter is not there, and usually in these talks my daughter is not with me, I tell this story because otherwise when she's here she would sort of um, uh, make this expression very um, familiar to you and say, Mom, you know. Um, and, I, and I, because I remember that the first time I read Shakespeare, it was much ado about nothing. And it was so amazing to me that she was almost the same age when she was going to middle school um, here um, in the US. And, and, and she felt very alien at the beginning uh, of her um, time here, obviously. And, and, and one day she came home and she said, Mom, listen to these words. And, and, and she was talking about Romeo and Juliet, and there was a line in Romeo and Juliet. Um, it was actually about Rosalind and not Juliet. Uh, she's fair, she's wise, she's wise, she's fair, she's too wisely fair. And, and, and two thoughts went through my mind. One was um, someone who is too wisely fair does not deserve to be the title of a Shakespeare book. You need to have the lunacy of a Juliet uh, in order to deserve that title. And the second thing that uh, came to my mind was she is going to be okay. 
she has made her home. And, and, and I was right, she had made her home. Uh, she will be uh, graduating um, this year in uh, English literature and neurobiology. And, and, uh, <laughs> and I told her, uh, Nabokov, who himself was a scientist, used to say, um, you need to have the precision of the poet and the passion of a scientist. Uh, and, 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 and this is also another thing that we're missing today in our segregated world, the way humanities and works of imagination are segregated from genuine works of science because both um, science and, and, and literature have this in common that they're constantly in search of what they do not know. They're constantly trying to discover new worlds, new boundaries. And, and, and so that was how, um, in that country and later in America, I, I made my home. I made uh, what my, uh, was called the Republic of Imagination, a community of readers and writers who knew no national or cultural or political or racial or sexual or class boundaries. It was only in this Republic of Imagination where you could talk about um, a Greek man named Plato side by side with a, um, uh, with a, um, um, a Persian man called Rumi, uh, with a woman called, uh, African-American woman called Toni Morrison, um, an Englishman called, um, um, I don't know, Martin Amis. <laughs> you, you call it, I mean, uh, the list um, uh, is um, uh, endless. It was only in that Republic of Imagination, where you truly became a citizen of the world, where everyone was equal to everyone else, and, and every reader and every writer had, had their, uh, their own space and their own specific domain to converse and to have a dialogue in. So when I came back home uh, after um, 1979, when I finished my dissertation, I, I hurried back home. And of course, as I have said it time and again, home was not home. And, and it's always like that. And, and, and home should not be home. It is, as we know today, in this country, whenever we feel too smug, whenever we feel too sure of ourselves, whenever we feel that we have already defined ourselves and our relationship to the world, that is the most dangerous of all times. Because home should basically be a place where you constantly question and re-question yourself. Otherwise, that smugness is far more dangerous than any enemy from outside. And, and, and I think that that is, um, thank you. That is what I learned at a great price when I went home. But there was also another sense in which home was not home, um, and, and that sense I, I, I did question. Uh, because all of a sudden, uh, in a country that I loved and I was born and I grew up in, in a country with 2,500 years of, of known history. And by the way, half of that history, um, Iran, of course, was not Muslim. It was Zoroastrian. Um, you know that the religion was Zoroastrian. You know that Iranians, one tradition that they have kept 
um, for, for 2,500 years has been the celebration of the new year, um, uh, which is the 21st of March, uh, which comes from the Zoroastrian feast of spring, celebrating the first day um, of, of, of spring. And no matter what this government did, um, banning Nowruz, banning the celebrations before Nowruz, um, calling people who um, uh, perform these celebrations as um, uh, infidels, it did not work. People still celebrate um, no rules the way they had done it uh, for, 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 for centuries. Uh, anyway, in this country, I now had become an alien. There were a group of people who had come to my country in the name of my religion, in the name of my traditions, saying that everything that people like me felt or imagined, or the principles we held dear to us, or even the way we looked was alien. It was all an imperialist plot. And, and, and that was something that really bothered me. And, and, and I want to, and everywhere I go, I, I put it to my Western um, friends, and I would like to put it to you, that it was, again, a great moment of pain when I returned after 18 years um, uh, to Europe and, and, and later to this country, and I discovered that the image that the Islamists in Iran and later around the world had given of that country, of that religion, of its traditions, had become the accepted image of what this country was all about. And that many people would look at me and say, oh, but, you know, you're different, you're Western. And suddenly, everything that had to do with freedom, that had to do with independence, that had to do with individual integrity, even something as basic as the issue of human rights, suddenly became Western. And, and the rest of the world, um, they would say, oh, it's their culture. Now, I want to go over what these people said, it's their culture. And I want you to go over the history of each of these countries we call Muslim. To see that the changes that happened in Iran or in Turkey or in Egypt or in Lebanon were not because of imposition of the West, although the relationship with the West was always a paradoxical one, as now, then, there was an exploitative side to it, uh, both economic and political. But there was also a cultural exchange, and, and my country was a country that from um, mid... How much time do I have? Is there a light there? <laughs> You know, it's so good to have a captive audience in a dark room, um, and I cannot see you guys um, looking at your watches. Um, uh, the light should be there. Okay, so uh, do flicker on and off and let me know. Um, at any rate, um, to cut a long story short, um, this was a country that for over 150 years had been fighting for, for pluralism. Um, it's women not because of the Shah. It's women had been fighting since mid-1800s um, for their rights. 
And at the time of the revolution, uh, for example, we had women in all walks of life. We had two women ministers, one minister for women's affairs. Um, we had uh, women in the police, in the heavy industry. We had women in the Senate. We had women in the House of Parliaments. We have women active in all walks of life. If you see Iranian women today being so active, being so dynamic, being so vital, it is not because of the Islamic regime, but it is because this is the way the society was. And, and, and like all times of chaos, we made many mistakes which we paid very heavily for. But the fight was not just given up. These rights were taken one by one and through violence. I remember about the women, how, how thousands of women would come daily into the streets saying freedom is neither Eastern nor Western, freedom is global. And they would be attacked by uh, people throwing acid into their faces. Would, they would be attacked with knives and scissors. And still they could not force the laws on women until they made, for example, the wearing of the veil mandatory first in workplaces, then in public places. Now, of course, the issue of the veil, I want to remind you, is not whether the veil is good or bad. It is all about freedom of choice. It is about the fact that a woman or a man should not be told by state how to relate to his or her God. That that is the, the question of choice. Uh, many women, uh, including my own grandmother, who never took off their veil all their lives, were insulted by the fact that the veil had now become a political symbol and not a symbol of their faith. It is like some Christians saying that this is a Christian majority country. So from tomorrow, we all reduce Christianity, America to Christianity, and some people want to do that, and Christianity to one aspect of it, say Southern Baptism, you know? And, and from tomorrow, because this is a Christian majority country, all Americans should wear crosses. Does, will the cross mean anything if those who don't believe in it also wear it? So this is the question, the question of choice. And this is why the first thing that the government did when they came to Iran, they changed the laws. Uh, the eight months before uh, we had a new constitution or a president, they changed the family protection law, which protected women both at home and at work. Then um, they reduced the age of marriage from 18 to 9. I mean, you can imagine a nine-year-old girl saying, oh, it's my culture. Yes, uh, I should be married at that age. Um, they. Um, uh, of course, polygamy um, was legal, but for what they called prostitution and adultery, uh, they brought the punishment of stoning to death. Now, to say that this is their culture is like saying that Inquisition was the culture of Europe and not St. Augustine or St. Thomas Aquinas. To say that it is their culture is to say that burning witches in Salem was the culture of this country and not Thoreau or Emerson or Hawthorne or Melville. To say that this is their culture is like saying that slavery was the culture of this country and not Flannery O'Connor or Carson McCullers or William Faulkner. 
every culture, every nation, every people have things to be ashamed of. What differentiates between what, you know, uh, when, uh, between what is bad and brutal and what is not is the fact that every nation, every people, every country has the right to rise up and try to change. And that right to change is a natural, it should be a natural and a God-given right. And it doesn't matter if it's a minority, and it's always a minority. In fact, all great religions began with minorities. You look at Moses and Jesus and um, Muhammad, uh, were they all welcomed with open arms? For heaven's sake, one of them was even crucified. So it begins with that desire, that vision, that ability to imagine things as they should be or as they could be. And that is what we should support. You remember that during the time of Harriet Beecher Stowe, in mid-1800s, women, when Beecher Stowe went to England, she did not have the right to speak in public. She would write her speech and her husband would read it for her. Remember that when the slavery was going on here, there were cler clergymen here who would say that women should stay at home, according to Bible, and that slavery is approved of in Bible. And remember that at that time, I hope, if we were alive, we would approve of those half a million British women who signed petitions against slavery and in support of the movement which was going on in this country against slavery. Remember that in this country, as late as late 50s, buses were segregated. So these are the things we need to remember in order to support the rights of other people in other countries to also fight for their rights to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Okay, so I go now rather fast because I would like to come to um, my conclusion and talk a little bit about um, uh, this country. Now, um, the point is that it was not just about women because every totalitarian state, and this was not really Islam, the religion itself was confiscated. The, what, what comes at Islamism is another form of totalitarianism, and this government um, has taken far more from um, uh, even the jargon that they use, the political jargon that they use is far more Stalinist and, and fascist than it is um, um, Islam. Uh, and um, one of the things, of course, that they did was um, confiscate culture. And I brought some examples of it in my book. Um, for example, taking Desdemona out of most scenes of uh, Othello, um, you know, and, and, and taking Othello's suicide of um, the end of um, Laurence Olivier's movie because they said the masses would be depressed watching somebody committed suicide. The masses would go to be stoned to death saying, oh, it's our culture. 
culture, you know, we're happy to do it, but they really become depressed when Sir Lawrence Olivier commits suicide um, on screen, you know. Uh, and, and remember that in Soviet Union, not only were the best minds of not just uh, Soviet Union, but 20th century people like Osip Mandelstam and Anna Akhmatova were banned from writing and died in concentration camps, but people like Albert Camus or Jean-Paul Sartre or Faulkner or Hemingway were called decadent Westerners and they were banned. And remember that in Soviet Union, they banned the death of a swan in Swan Lake for the fear that masses would be depressed. Remember the uniformity imposed upon the Chinese people during the Cultural Revolution and the banning of Beethoven and Mozart, Mozart because they were bourgeois and they would evoke bourgeois feelings in you. So uh, this was what it was, totalitarianism. This was why Lolita becomes so important. To, to, it became so important to our health. Because when a people are deprived of the last vestiges of individual integrity, when everything that they do, the way they smile, the way they laugh, the music they want to listen to, the way they want to express their love in public is all confiscated, then with their flesh and blood, they understand the importance of individual integrity of individual rights. And that is why Iran becomes so important, and that is why the youth in Iran and the people in Iran resisted, not through violence, but through being who they are. The struggle, the most important struggles, as the case of the struggle for civil rights in this country, are not just political, they are existential. They're a statement about the integrity of individuals um, uh, in this life and a statement against brutality. And, and that is what happened in my country. If they read Lolita, if they read Kant and Spinoza, if they're quoting Hannah Arendt, it is because that was the only way they could articulate their sense of individual integrity and dignity. They tried to savor and to save the best that mankind could offer. Uh, you read um, uh, memoirs of the death camps, of concentration camps in Soviet Union or in, during fascism, and ho not just writers like Primo Levi, but just ordinary pr uh, prisoners, deprived of everything, even their gold teeth, at death's door, want to remember Flaubert, want to remember a tune. Why? Does Henry James save us from death or from cruelty of life? Obviously, he doesn't. But what he reminds us is that even when you have no choice, even when they have taken all your choices away from you, you still have the choice to choose the kind of attitude you take towards the world. And the attitude of fiction, of literature, of painting, of music, of philosophy is an attitude of not just political resistance, but resistance against the banality and brutality of life. It is a saying no, a constant no to this brutality. 
And that is why reading Lolita in Tehran became important. And I want to end this section and then just wrap up my, my talk um, with two points about two books. I don't have time to go over um, many writers. I just want to remind you that many people in this country talk about Lolita um, as, a, as, a, as a, de a decadent book about celebration of pedophilia. But, but Lolita is in essence um, a book about blindness. At the very, very first page, Humbert Humbert says that Lolita had a precedence. Uh, it was a girl named Annabelle Lee, uh, whom he was in love when he was with when he was a kid, and the love was never consummated, and she dies. And from then on, he wants to impose his image, his frozen love of Annabelle Lee upon every little 12-year-old girl that he meets. And his most cruel crime against Lolita is imposing his image of her dead love upon her living reality and depriving Lolita of her childhood, depriving her of all the potentials she had. We never know what Lolita could have become. And like all sophists and solipsists, Humbert Humbert is a very attractive man. He's a handsome, literate, um, articulate European male who can quote you um, uh, all sorts of poets and philosophers in order to legitimize pedophilia. And the person he seduces is not Lolita, who from the first night he seduces her, she knows who he is. And she's constantly trying to evade her and he never really can possess her. Lolita's character is one of the most poignant characters in 20th century literature. It is us, the readers, who Humbert is out to seduce. He calls us ladies and gentlemen of the jury. We, as readers, become the jury because monsters do not come into the world with a tag on their forehead saying, we are monsters, beware. They come in the guise of charismatic leaders. They come in the guise of people who tell part of the truth. They come in the guise of sophists. And they come to seduce us. So reading Lolita as reading every great book is putting us as readers into test. And the greatest message of the novel is that the greatest crime we can commit against anyone is the crime of blindness towards others. Um, so I wanted to um, end this part about Iran with Lolita, and I, I can't help it. I know I don't have time. I have about five more minutes, but I'm going to do this. Um, I love talking about Jane Austen because um, I didn't like the movie, no. But <laughs> and I tell you, I can tell you why exactly I didn't like the movie. But you know, 
everybody calling her a spinster, not talking about the French Revolution, who wants to read um, a late 18th, early 19th century a woman who talks about um, upper middle class um, uh, British, um, not even the British would want to know about it. But, 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 but the point about Austen is that novel is not democratic because of its content. The novel is democratic because of its structure. Content is without structure is just a message. And didactism is the worst kind of dictatorship an author can impose upon his readers. Because a novel should not give you a message, it should put you in the experience. It should awaken your senses. It should guard you against what Saul Bellow calls the atrophy of feeling. The novel is an awakening of consciousness, and a message deadens your senses. It doesn't awaken them. Austen, when you read her, every novel you read is a polyphony of voices. You can never mistake Elizabeth Bennet for Mrs. Bennet, Mrs. Bennet for Lydia, Lydia for Jane. They are each possessed of their own voices. The villains are not punished. We laugh at them. It is very real, because in real life, it is not as if all villains are banished and they die and you know, all the good guys live happily ever after. But the most important thing about Austen is that at the center of the Austen, as at the center of the English novel from Richardson to, to Fielding to Bronte to George Eliot, um, there is a woman. The most subversive element is a woman saying no to the authority of her parents, of her society, braving a life of loneliness and poverty, but saying, I marry the man that I choose. So at the center of Austin, as at the center of the, their eyes are watching God by Zora Neale Hurston, is the idea of freedom and choice. OK, so I want to end my talk by saying, wonderful. Now the students and former revolutionists in Iran are reading our novels. How great. But we don't need to read their novels. We have Wolf Bitzer and we have O'Reilly Factor. And you know, what more do we want? If we want to become very intellectual, we listen to John Stewart. <laughs> you know? And I listened to John Stewart before he was trendy. You know, um, really, I listened to him before his Indecision 2000. Because, and, and of course, this is the whole point about democracy, the, 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 the idea of the ability to laugh at yourself, the ability to look at yourself with the distance of laughter. But anyway, the whole point is that, do we need Lolita? In, 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 in this country. Uh, obviously, you being here are, are sort of uh, responding to that. Uh, I, I know that. But what worries me about this country is the fact that this country now, people see activism only in terms of political activism. They see it separate from the quality and excellence of their life and the quality and excellence of their mind. And, and, and you know, that sleeping consciousness which Saul Bellow so much worried about, 
He used to say that in totalitarian states, like in Stalin's uh, Russia, um, brutality, vulgarity, banality is naked. When, when you torture someone in death camps, um, it is all obvious that you would condemn it. Of course, some people in the West did not condemn it at that time. Um, but in the West, he said, what threatens us is our sleeping consciousness. And in order for our consciousness not to go asleep, in order to have politicians who would be as um, curious and as poetic as a Benjamin Franklin, for example, in order to have that dynamism and vitality, we have to go to the best that this country has been able to produce and that the world has produced, and that is its works of imagination. Um, I, I want to end with, since I told you I hate message, I'm going to give a message. And, um, you know, and, and I want to, um, nowadays I keep coming, uh, doing this in both my writings and talks, but I love this image. So I want to um, end my talk with this image and then with a message. Um, and the image, uh, uh, it, I, I keep repeating this because um, after the elections, we kept hearing about American values. American values, American values. And, you know, it was just the fight between Democrats and Republicans who could be more like the other. Um, now, I thought of American values, and I thought, um, you know, the image I used to have of America when I was young, and that image most probably was implanted in me by Mark Twain, um, was, was a completely different set of values. Um, it, it was a sort of an Alice-like value of running after what is unknown and what is new. And, 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 and that scene in, in Huckleberry Finn, when you remember Huck is sitting there thinking, should he give Jim up or not? Because he had been told that um, uh, in Sunday school that if you do not give up a runaway slave, you go straight to hell. And he believes it. He believes it that if he doesn't do this, he will go to hell. So he's sitting there and he writes a letter saying that, you know, uh, I have this uh, guy and, you know, come and get him. And then he says, I imagined Jim in the morning. I imagined him in the evening. And he goes through all the times he imagined Jim. And he realizes the fact that Jim has been his true friend. Jim has been his real companion. And he said, at that moment, I decided, all right then. I go to hell, and I tore up that, that piece of paper, and I never thought about it again. This is what I thought when I thought of American values. The ability to say, all right, then I go to hell, and the talk that you have through reflection with yourself, rather than giving up to the formulas, to the path answers, to the most comfortable response that you can get. So I think that um, I was here, and, and every talk I give, uh, it is with the purpose of making trouble. And, and, and uh, really, and, and I'm becoming more and more obsessed with this idea. I hope there are some book groups here. I was just telling my friends out here that I didn't know my book was a book group. I mean, my, my class was a book group until I wrote this book and the book groups discovered it. Um, so what I want, I, I think that every book group in, in cities and countries, first of all, our colleges, 
our high schools should create subversive book groups where people read for this pure, sensual, and adulterated pleasure of reading and nothing else. And second of all, book groups should get together and make their demands known against the censorship, um, against the cutting of the budget for the libraries, um, supporting their bookstores, supporting the idea of books. When an Arthur Miller or a Saul Bellow or Susan Sontag dies, we need town hall meetings. We need to revive that power of imagination which will be the genuine um, uh, savior of either this country or any other country. So I hate messages. I gave my message. I hate slogans, and I will end with a slogan. Um, book lovers of the world, unite. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you all. We do have a little bit of time for questions. So if you want to pass them to the ushers, we'll collect them. And I'll just start off with one, um, which is just about teaching and writing. Teaching is obviously something you do well and something you find rewarding. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you manage to balance teaching and writing and how they exercise different muscles for you. <laughs> it's, a, it's actually quite a um, difficult question. Of course, both teaching and writing are in a sense about um, communicating. And, 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 and there is an exchange. I mean, in writing, there's this hidden and secret exchange with the world. And, and um, like what Margaret Atwood was talking about, she said that um, um, she never knows why she writes. There are voices from distant villages beckoning to her. Uh, you know, she said that there's a bloody hatchet in the middle of the living room, it seems. And I ask myself, where does this bloody hatchet come from? It needs to be investigated. So I think writing is like that. And, 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 and teaching for me is also like that. Um, no matter how many times I've read Pride and Prejudice, every time I read it through the eyes of my students, I find something that I hadn't known. And, and, and I love that exchange. Um, but I have to say that they do interfere with one another. Uh, writing is such a solitary. Um, and, and, and I have a lot of problem. And that's why I've taken the year off and <laughs> in order to write. <laughs> This is not a question of literature, but of imagination. What do the fundamentalists imagine is so frightening and threatening about women that they must be constrained and shrouded? Well, well I think that um, fundamentalism, I mean, any totalitarian or fundamentalist mindset, one thing that they are, I think that they're, in fact, very vulnerable. You notice how both the fascist state and the, and, and, and the Soviet state all of a sudden crumbled because there is, there is an essential con confidence in democracy because you are, you are so confident of where you stand, where you allow other voices to come and interfere and confront and challenge you. And I think with fundamentalists, it is that essential fear of, of being challenged and, and, and having to change. And, and since there is no dialogue, then what happens um, is rather than 
and dialogue needs imagination because it's a constant questioning and a constant putting yourself in someone else's shoes. And I think that that is why um, it becomes so difficult, a matter of life and death for fundamentalists. And that is why culture becomes so central um, um, in their struggle against um, freedom. Could you share with us some of your favorite Persian authors, both classical and contemporary, and who would you recommend that the audience read? <laughs> God, I, you know, there are so many authors, and every time I ask this question, I become really nervous, like, uh, you know, somebody who has to um, respond to an exam question and completely black out. <laughs> but, <laughs> and I hate to say that there are two books that I wrote uh, some short introductions to, but I did that because they were really my favorite books. And they're both by a fantastic translator, Dick Davis. Um, one is the Book of Kings by our epic poet, um, uh, Ferdowsi. Um, he, he wrote the Book of Kings about a thousand years ago uh, after the Arab conquest of Persia, uh, in order because Persians, at, that was a time in our uh, history when we felt so uh, without identity, and through Book of Kings, Ferdowsi told the whole mythology of Iran going back through 3,000 years ago until um, you know, his own time. Um, then there is a very funny book um, uh, called My Uncle Napoleon. Um, uh, which became, I think, the most popular book. It was written in the early 1970s um, in Iran, and that book is also translated into English by Dick Davis. And um, it brings you all the, uh, it's a farce, uh, a parody and a farce, and it's also a tender love story. And it brings you a lot about Iran that um, one has forgotten. Then, of course, there is the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, our um, who was an atheist um, and a materialist 700 years ago and, and, and Hafiz. Um, my God, I can just um, go on and on forever, um, thank God. <laughs> Though a scholar of creative writing and great fiction, you chose to express yourself in a nonfiction memoir. Were you ever tempted to be more imaginative in telling your own history and what is your perspective of fiction in memoirs? <laughs> Nowadays, of course. <laughs> um, I, I think that um, every written statement, uh, uh, in a sense, um, does have um, a, a fictional account to it. I mean, every story, even a memoir, um, uh, is, is your subjective interpretation of, um, of um, history or of facts or of what you remember. But I do think that uh, memoirs should remain true, uh, basically, to, uh, to what actually happened. Otherwise, uh, why write memoirs? But my not writing fiction, it is not that I haven't been tempted. It's that I have not dared. Um, I, I think to write fiction is, for me, it is the highest point. Um, and um, I'm afraid I have not had the courage up to now. Uh, uh, I have done it in the privacy of my room and hated myself, but. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remain hopeful about the restoration of women's rights in Iran? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, one of the worst things um, that a totalitarian state can do for you, not for you, but to you, um, is to 
for victims, and this is true of um, any form of victimhood, uh, victims become um, complicit in their own victimization. And, and, and they accept it. They accept their status as a victim. And, and thus they forget that how, how powerful they are. And, and one thing that happened with women in Iran is that from the very first moment of, of the revolution, they resisted. Uh, at first they resisted through um, um, demonstrations and protests. When those were banned, they resisted by what I call um, their weapons of mass destruction, which is like their lipstick or um, showing their hair, refusing to comply. Now, you can uh, take the political opposition and destroy them, put them in jail, the, the, torture them, but what do you do with millions of people who come into the street um, not dressed the way you want them to be dressed? Um, who are supposed not to listen to music, who listen to music? Um, uh, who, who, who read the banned books. There is nothing that you can really do with them. And I, I'm, I'm very proud of that aspect of um, uh, my country because I think even now with this president, um, those women who were protesting um, did not uh, learn to comply. It was the people in the regime who had to change. And, and, I, and I think that that is something that makes me very help, help, hopeful. What was the response to reading Lolita at the University of Tehran in, in Iran? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, um, uh, Persian is one language that my book has not been translated in. And, uh, <laughs> and of course, I always say that I do thank the uh, Islamic regime for um, you know, not allowing my book to be published because whatever they ban becomes much more popular <laughs> than um, what they don't. But uh, I do get um, a lot of uh, response uh, from um, both former students and, and, and colleagues and, and, and people that I had not known, especially the young people. Um, but it's very difficult uh, to tell. Some people also worry because they haven't read the book, but they think that um, Iranian people now have become very conscious of their image because the image of Iran in the world has been such a negative image. Um, and sometimes they worry that how much my book has attributed to, to creating that negativity. Um, I don't think that, I, I tried to celebrate um, um, the best um, uh, in my people, um, but um, I'm sure that there's a lot of criticism as well. We have time for one more question. Um, well, it's actually two. If you could require the president of Iran to read one book, what would it be? <laughs> and what about the president of the US? <laughs> well, <laughs> very, very unfair. I, I, I'd love to know who asked that question. <laughs> Well, let, let, let me respond by telling you a story then. Um, uh, and, and it's a story that you all know. I, I, I always, almost always begin uh, my, my literary criticism either with this or with Alice. Um, it is a, the frame story of um, Shahrzad, um, uh, 1001 Nights. And, and, and very, very briefly, you remember uh, that in that story, we have a king who supposedly is very much in love with the queen. Um, but um, once he goes away to a journey, and uh, the queen betrays him with a slave. 
Um, so without having a trial or talking with the queen, obviously, he kills her, he beheads her, obviously the slave too. And from then on, he decides all women are terrible. So every night, he marries a virgin. And in the morning before that virgin has a time to betray him, he beheads her. And soon the city is running out of virgins. They have either left or, you know, um, and of course I always ask myself, why doesn't one of those virgins take a knife to bed? I mean, if she's going to be killed. <laughs> but, but I will tell you why the moral of the story and, and why I would suggest that to uh, both our presidents. The whole idea behind this story um, is the idea of, of, of dialogue. The king feels only safe in the public domain and in the domain where he can use violence. He cannot exchange ideas or, or talk with, with, with the person who has betrayed him. He does not go after the reason. And as long as you stay in that public domain and, and, and react to the king, he'll be the, he'll be the winner. So this is where Shahrzad comes in. She is uh, wise and beautiful, and she decides to marry the king. And every night, he, she tells him a story, but leaves the story unfinished by dawn. And so for 1,001 nights, every night she tells him a new story. The whole moral of this story is that you take the person whom you oppose to your domain, which is the domain of her private world and the domain of imagination, and you cure him. And the king who up to then saw the world in black and white, now all of a sudden through these stories sees the world through colors. He learns that some women are good, some women are bad. Some men are good, some men are bad. Even some kings are good, and some kings are bad. Once his curiosity is aroused, he changes without knowing that he has changed. So I think that that would be the story, and it's short, so it can. <laughs> thank you, and thank you all for coming. That was Azara Nafisi at Seattle Arts and Lectures in February 2006. This was Sal on Air, a podcast featuring some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 30 years of Seattle arts and lectures. Support for the inaugural season of Sal on Air comes from the M.J. Murdoch Charitable Trust. To hear more from Sal on Air, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more conversation and connection, join us for our 2018-19 season featuring talks by Catherine Boo, Soma Sharif, Zadie Smith, and more literary surprises. Tickets are available now at lectures.org. Our show is produced by Jack Straw Cultural Center. Special thanks to the Seattle Arts and Lectures staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to Daniel Spills for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Ruth Dickey, and this has been another edition of Sal on Air from Seattle Arts and Lectures.